Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. That theirs was a civilization, a real civilization, different from Roman civilization. And of course, Stevenson was very deeply versed in the classics. So Rome became the great um, comparison point for him when he was discussing civilization. But he respected what the Samoans had, but was afraid of what could happen to them in the future, the extent to which they could be subjugated and can lose their distinctiveness. So it was that, above all, which I found quite fascinating, that he stood. He was a good man, Stevenson. He was a good writer, but he was also a good man, which is an altogether rarer thing. He identified with the Samoan people, said, your way of life is worth protecting. But you've got to do, you have to take certain steps and go with it. That was what I was least informed about, and that's what I found above all when I went there and um, spoke to Samoans or read much more about him during this period. I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move. The curious words of Scottish novelist, poet and essayist Robert Louis Stevenson. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How important were the people of Samoa to Robert Louis Stevenson? And did living in Samoa change him fundamentally as a writer? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with Scottish writer, translator and teacher, Dr Joseph Farrell, whose new book, Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa, has just been published by the MacLehose Press, where Joe writes, the story of Stevenson and Samoa deserved detailed treatment, as did the story of Samoa itself. Samoa changed Stevenson, in a distinction the Greeks would have recognised. Samoa forced him to dedicate himself to the active as well as to the creative or contemplative life. Joe goes on to argue, Robert Louis Stevenson was not altogether the unblemished anti-imperialist that his admirers now or his opponents then liked to depict. So what type of a man was Robert Louis Stevenson? And how did his journey to the South Pacific inform his political consciousness and voice? I'm Joe Farrell. I'm delighted to be here in Dublin. I live in Glasgow. All my life, my professional life, I was a professor of Italian in the University of Strathclyde. But now that I'm retired, I can then spread my wings, if I can put it that way. So I've been delighted to get the opportunity to write this book about Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa. How it came about was due to a couple of factors. In a certain sense, I like to say that I grew up with Robert Louis Stevenson. The boys, not so much the girls, but the boys of my age uh, were all quite keen on Stevenson. That's not to say that we were all great readers, but at that time the BBC was a different kind of organisation. So there were adaptations of his novels, there were things called classic comics which circulated, and we did also read quite a lot. This particular book which deals with the last four years of the life of Robert Louis Stevenson, the years he spent in Samoa, came about when I was invited to the University of Melbourne as visiting professor in um, Italian. 
We decided, my wife and I, over Easter that we would go to Samoa to see the burial place of our writer. We had a certain difficulty with it in the sense that we went along to the travel agent and we had to persuade the young lady to sell us tickets for Samoa. Why do you want to go to Samoa? Fiji is much more lovely. The beaches are much better. No, no, we want to go and see where Robert Louis Stevenson lived and died. Her next question was, who was Robert Louis Stevenson? But being a modern young lady, she googled him and came up with important information. Oh, he wrote Treasure Island. So we were then authorised to go to um, Samoa. When we arrived there, we were greeted very warmly. Um, the hotel we were staying in was at the opposite of the island of Upolu, the main island of the Samoan archipelago. And the taxi or the minibus driver asked everybody where they came from. And I remember there was a German couple, there were some Dutch people. There was a very drunken young lady from California and Samoans. And when he came to us and said, where are you from? And we said, Scotland. And all the Samoans cheered. Well, that wasn't just a gracious welcome to us. This was another act of homage to Robert Louis Stevenson, um, who's still held in very, very high regard in Samoa for what he'd done in defence of the people in the 19th century in the heyday of imperialism. So it occurred to me that this could be the subject of a book, and this is the book which I have written. Um, I wanted to call it Robert Louis Stevenson and Samoa. The publisher wanted it to be Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa, and the publisher will always win these arguments. My thinking was that I wanted to focus on the history and the culture of Samoa rather than just dealing with Robert Louis Stevenson in a period of exile, if that's uh, that's what it was. So that's what I consider to be the book. Robert Louis Stevenson his impact on Samoa and Samoa's impact on him and also something about the culture, the way of life, the history of Samoa. Really well done on the book, Joe. It's a it's a very interesting read, I have to say, and I must commend you on the choice of photographs and so on. It really um, brings the island to life. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off, if that's okay. What does the book uh, Treasure Island mean to you? And do you think it's fair to say it's a novel for boys? It was one of the things I found curious when I was doing research and having discussions. I had a discussion with a female friend of mine. I was becoming quite obsessed with the subject and I spoke about Robert Louis Stevenson and she said she had never read him when she was a girl because he was regarded as a writer for boys. Now, that's not a universal opinion, but I mean, she did actually represent something. And in particular in Treasure Island, which he wrote for Lloyd Osborne, who was his stepson, the... Um, son of his wife, Fanny Osborne, um, he specifically said, and, and who later became a co-writer, they co-authored some books together much later on, but he did say to uh, Lloyd Osborne, there will be no women in this book, apart from one at the very beginning in the inn in Bristol, and she's off the scene very quickly. So yes, it's an adventure story. Some people have tried to make it into some kind of allegory, a search for an El Dorado, a search for a utopia. I really don't think this is the case. I think this is ultimately an adventure story um, with some very, very vivid characters, Long John Silver in particular, and not to mention 
uh, the young man himself, uh, Hawkins, who's at the very core of the story. But for me, it's an adventure story set on the seas. Now, Robert Louis Stevenson was familiar with the seas because he came from a, a family of lighthouse engineers. And when he was a boy, he'd gone with his father, who was an internationally recognised um, engineer in lighthouses, as had been his grandfather before him. So they travelled the seas around Scotland to visit sites and to visit also lighthouses. So it's one of the great adventures of the sea. I think it's the equal of anything written by Joseph Conrad, but I tend to be distrustful of those who say that there is a deeper element of the quest for some metaphysical meaning of life. Do you think it's fair to describe Robert Louis um, Stevenson as um, a Victorian dropout, or do you think that's a bit rough on him? Um... You would have to distinguish between various phases in his life. He died when he was only 44 and he produced an enormous amount of work. In Edinburgh, as a youth, he attended school. He also attended university where he studied law and he became an advocate, the equivalent of a barrister in England or in Ireland. But he himself said he didn't attend university very much. He was something of a rebel and he became known as Velvet Jacket because he frequented the bars and the houfs which is a Scottish word that means basically a pub or a, a club. He frequented them very very much as a, as a young man. So he was a bohemian a dropout, if you wish, but very much a bohemian who operated on the fringes of respectable society. He also lost his faith at that time. His parents were devout, practising members of the Church of Scotland. They were Presbyterian through and through. And there were terrible arguments in the house, especially with his father over his rejection of religion, over his disbelief, his growing atheism, um, which became... So, yes, in his earliest days, he may have had affairs with prostitutes, there's some debate over that, but there's a mysterious figure who may have been called Kate, but who may not have existed. There is disagreement among the biographers. But certainly he was someone who did live on the um, fringes of Edinburgh society. I mean, he came from a very well-to-do bourgeois background in the new town in Edinburgh, and there is a division, if you like, between the new town and the old town, the medieval part, where the castle and the Cathedral of St Giles are. Some people see this as a kind of parallel of Jekyll and Hyde, which might be his most um, famous novel, but he was able to move between the two parts of the city, coming from a well-to-do background, home, to which he always returned every night, but then living a different kind of life. Thereafter, I suppose, he did move into the mainstream of society, but he retained a hostility towards the respectable bourgeoisie, which may be unexpected in a writer of his stamp. But you will find in his letters, even much later on in his life, um, a distaste for the respectable standards of Victorian Scotland, Victorian Britain, um, particularly shown in the Imperial Project, and uh, the unwillingness of these people from this respectable background um, to uh, accept any ideas which are in any way non-conformist or, uh, or unorthodox. So there's an element of the dropout in him, particularly in his youth, but it would not be fair to make him out as a sort of Baudelaire uh, for the whole, course of his, the whole course of his short life. 
He had a tremendous appetite for life, but was crippled with ill health. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Because he'd such um, enthusiasm and such vision for what he wanted to do. But he was quite restricted and he had to really bear that in mind all through his life, wasn't he? Well, this is entirely true. Even as a boy, he suffered from ill health. He had some sort of pulmonary disease, which was taken to be tuberculosis. There was a matter of fact, recent research said that was not the case. But he certainly had terrible problems, which meant that he couldn't sleep. His parents hired a nanny uh, known to history or known to him as Kami, to whom he was very, very attached. And this woman had an enormous impact on him uh, because she too was very much a Presbyterian Calvinist and would tell him stories taken from the Bible. And she unquestionably went a long way towards forming something of his own ethical uh, outlook on life, which was Calvinism, even when he'd broken away from it. Um, nevertheless, he had to travel because of his ill health. He was a traveller um, all his life. G.K. Chesterton, who wrote a marvellous book about Stevenson, said that Stevenson was in part an adventurer, but in part an invalid. And the two did come together because he had to travel to find a climate which was better than the climate of Scotland for his health. So he spent time in Switzerland, he spent time in France, he spent time in North America, initially around uh, New York. Um, his wife was from California, so he did uh, follow her and spent time in California. It was in California that they hired the yacht which they used to go cruising around in the South Seas and which ultimately brought them to um, Samoa. So it was a search for health which essentially made him leave Edinburgh, leave Scotland. Nonetheless, there was another part of him which revelled in these new experiences to which he responded very warmly, most particularly uh, in, in the South Seas. Um, even if you look at his early poetry, then he talks sometimes, for example, there's one, uh, My bed is like a little boat, which can be taken as quite a profound metaphor for his existence. He needed the bed because of his ill health, but he yearned to be able to travel on the boat, and eventually he did. And when he settled in Samoa, one of the principal reasons for doing so was that this seemed to him the ideal climate where he could begin to flourish, that the climate was altogether better for him, and indeed it was. But even in the South Seas, he still suffered very, very serious bouts of extreme ill health when he was not expected to survive. And I think it's in this that the often controversial figure of his wife, Fanny, becomes of great importance because whatever the problems there were between them, whatever the quirks and deficiencies of her character, I have no doubt that she kept him alive. Uh, for longer than he would otherwise have been able to exist in this world. You have to admire the ambition of him to actually uh, believe in the dream and get himself to Samoa because a lot of his friends would have thought that he was absolutely nuts. Well, many of his friends did actually consider him to be absolutely nuts, as you say it. Um, they believed that for a man of letters such as he was, he was a very promising novelist, and let's remember, above all, the essential thing is not to underestimate his status as a novelist. He was not just a writer of adventure stories. There was a moral quest in his books. There was an obsession with the idea of evil. He became friendly with people of the status of Henry James, who admired him enormously. They became very close friends. So he was a very considerable novelist. Nevertheless, the men of letters in a very 
English, or at least a very metropolitan way, considered that he was squandering his talent, that the proper place for a writer, for a man of letters, for an intellectual, was somewhere around Charing Cross in London. And the idea that he was uh, in this faraway island seemed to them simply crazy, but seemed to them to be dangerous, seemed to, uh, to them a way in which he was undermining or ruining the very real talent which they all did, in fact, uh, believe in. He obviously believed no such thing, and in particular when he was in the South Seas, then there was a transformation in his style of writing, and above all there was a decision on his part to become more actively involved in politics than he had been before. But it was politics in defence of the people who were the subject peoples of the British Empire in the great age of imperialism. So yes, he had a spark about him, but let's not overlook this, oh, decency seems to me to be an inadequate word, but this sort of moral driving force, this sense of indignation and outrage over the treatment which was being meted out to the people in the subject peoples in the British Empire, and also would have been by the Americans and Germans, these being the three great imperial forces in the Pacific in the 19th century. I'm just wondering, Joe, can you describe travelling and arriving in Apia, um, in Samoa? You arrived there a couple of years ago with your wife and you, you write, it is a place to be wondered at. I'm just wondering, can you just visually describe it? Because it sounds so exotic even today. It is exotic, it is idyllic, it is, uh, in more banal terms, extremely beautiful. Obviously it's changed a lot because one of the things that Stevenson said about that is that he came to like the people. He did not immediately take to them. He said that there were more um, beautiful peoples elsewhere in the South Seas because he had been sailing quite a long time. He sailed in three separate um, vessels uh, around there. But eventually he came really to love and to identify himself with Samoa. Partly this was due to the influence of an American trader because there was quite an established white population there, a man called Harry Moores, who persuaded him to buy over this land known as Vailima, where he eventually built his house and which is still there, which is now a museum uh, to um, Robert Louis Stevenson. It was already being exploited by the British to some extent, by the Americans to some extent, but above all by the Germans. And there was a a remarkable man from the city of Hamburg, Theodor Weber, who um, found a way of trading in copra, which is um, a derivative of the coconut plant, which grows very readily there. And he established enormous estates all over the island of Upolu, which is the main island of the archipelago. There are 13 islands which make it up. You can still see these today, straight lines, uh, where obviously the palm tree would grow in a completely different form. When he saw it, he was overawed by it. And, for example, in one of his story set there, the beach of Falesar, he imagines a trader called Wiltshire turning up and um, uh, describing the sheer loveliness of the mountains as they come down to the sea, even of the town of Apia. When Stevenson himself writes uh, in his own person, he wanted to write a book about the South Seas, but this caused terrible disputation with his wife, who wanted him to write a different kind of book. 
um, rather in keeping with the book he'd already written, Travels with a Donkey, which would be full of little anecdotes and c- colourful passages, he wanted to write what we would now, I think, call an academic book or a sociological, but a serious study of the way of life of the peoples in the South Seas. But he has a marvellous passage at the beginning of this book, which was not finally published in his lifetime, where he talks about there are some unrepeatable experiences the experience of falling in love for the first time, the experience of the first, the experience of the first South Sea island, um, and that was his experience when he went to some of the other islands, the Marquesas, in particular. He was in Hawaii as well, and also when he arrived in Samoa. It still is very beautiful. Um, it's not a poor island; it may be a third-world island in a certain sense, but. The people have all that they require. The seas are full of fish. Uh, there are palm trees, um, breadfruit trees and so on, which created a kind of a different kind of uh, problem for them that the people could actually eat and live without working, which seemed to many of the missionaries who were there incompatible with what St Paul uh, writes. But a beautiful place with a lot of water, um, fresh water, surrounded by the sea, um, Lovely houses, woods, mountains, very green, as green as Ireland or as Scotland, but at the same time with a very temperate climate. Oh, it also is exposed to tsunami or to typhoons um, and to a very wet period. There are only really two seasons, the dry season and the wet season. The temperature is uh, fairly balanced all the year round. He fell in love with it very quickly after an initial period of distaste and settled there very happily. It's interesting that the uh, French um, artist, the French painter Paul Gauguin was in Tahiti and then Stevenson was in Samoa, both inspired by the landscape and both very much doing what they felt was what they should be doing. Yes, but they responded in very different ways. I mean, Stevenson identified himself totally with the people. Um, Gauguin went there and Gauguin formed various relationships with the young women and then painted very, very erotic paintings. But he seemed to find something which he needed for himself, whereas Stevenson was keen to look outwards, to look at the people, to look at their way of life, to look at the threats that they were actually um, experiencing. The two never met, but I think the contrast between the response to the islands where they um, where they settled, I think it really is quite strikingly different. Joe, you argue he detected no romance in Dominion or in the brutality of empire. And you also touch on certain political aspects and political thinking throughout um, the biography of Stevenson and Samoa. So I'm just wondering, had you very kind of um, conflicted political thinking on certain things? Because some of it doesn't add up. Um, perhaps it doesn't add up. I'm not altogether sure. I think we have to begin from a moral rather than a political point of view. For him, the way that the people were being treated was quite simply indecent. It was not humane. It would, could not conform to any idea of ethic which he had. Stevenson was a man of the right. We would have to say he was a conservative with a small C and also with a capital C. He was a monarchist. He had a great admiration for Queen Victoria, as was common at that time. He also had a ferocious temper. So once when he overheard her being attacked in a restaurant, I think it was in Hawaii, he 
went berserk and smashed a bottle of wine against the wall and so on. So a man of the right, a man who possibly could have actually fitted in to an imperialist mentality, but who found that the treatment of human beings of whatever colour, the word racism was not current at that time, but obviously racist practice was, he was not in any way racist and could not find out um, why it was that people um, should be why people should actually behave in the way that they were actually behaving. So he tried to use his influence and his reputation, which was very considerable. Um, Treasure Island and Jekyll and Hyde had been published, so he was already a famous author. He wrote letters to the Times in London, which were political letters, not in any way literary letters. They were complaints about the behaviour of the um, white people, in Samoa, particularly the Germans. As I said, there were three forces there. The USA, because we're after the period of the Civil War when the Pacific was the backyard of America. Germany, which had been there even before the reunification of Germany in uh, 1870. There already were individual cities such as Hamburg uh, and individual German companies which had established um, themselves there in Samoa and in other islands. And then also, of course, Britain. But he, Stevenson, disapproved of all of them. I think we, you say there's a contradiction. Um, I think we can detect different attitudes in Stevenson. He was basically anti-imperialist, particularly when the imperialism was German. But if you had to have some sort of imperialism, then he believed that the British model was the best, that you were better with Britain than with um, any other country. So at one time, he even attempted to see if Samoa could be taken into the British Empire. The Samoans had already made moves in that direction, but they had been rebuffed um, by Britain. But he um, he talks about this in a book which hardly anybody reads, Footnote to History, which is a history of Samoa and the troubles of Samoa at the time he was there. Essentially, that was why he first went to Samoa. In writing the book about the South Seas, which, as I've said, um, was not published until after his death because he couldn't get agreement with his publisher and also with his wife, and he said, the Samoans have got everything they need for a relaxed and a happy life if they could be left on their own. But he went on to add, but this is a condition which cannot be satisfied at the present time, in the 19th century, with the imperial forces. But he did what he could to defend them, and he encouraged them uh, to defend themselves, not by military means, but by work. There was a spe speech which he made. Remember, the missionaries had been there before he arrived, um, particularly the London Missionary Society. There weren't very many Catholic missionaries. They did come, but they were treated with some suspicion because they were regarded as agents of France. Um, but when he was dealing um, with the missionaries who established schools. He became, he tended to disapprove of the missionary project as such, but became very friendly with individual missionaries. And on one occasion, he made a speech in a kind of college or seminary uh, for Protestant pastors. And he said to the Samoans that they had to start working. And he spoke to these future clergymen and said, you've got to preach and tell your people that they have to get out of this state of idleness 
which was easy for them because they didn't have to do back-breaking work so as to get what was essential for life. You've got to tell them to get out of this. And they've got to build roads, for example, because if they don't do that, then somebody else will do it for them. In fact, they already were, or the other people already there. If they don't do that, uh, and the islands of Samoa will be depopulated, and in future centuries people will ask, where are the Samoans? What happened to them? What happened to them? So there was a mixture of politics and morality, and also a Victorian outlook in him. And in a Victorian outlook, the sin of sins among the deadly sins was sloth or idleness created enormous difficulties for the uh, missionaries who went there to discover this people who were happy and prosperous in the sense that they had all that they needed for life, but didn't have to do the terrible work which was being done in Manchester, in London, um, in Marseille, Naples, in, in, in the cities back in Europe. Um, and Stevenson basically disapproved of that as well. He said, you've got to do more work because... This is a dangerous world. If you don't do it, then you're going to discover that you're submerged, that you have to submit to other people who will come and who will take your land, as they were doing. His letters to the Times were, above all, a protest against that and a protest against the unjust treatment, as he saw it, of the Samoans. Joe, you highlight how he became a nuisance to both the Germans and the English and also the Americans. And you say some saw him as a bit of an eccentric, some saw him as, as you say, a bit of a nuisance or a bit of a headbanger. But others thought, some people thought that he was actually potentially dangerous. It's remarkable to think that here he was on a remote island in the South Seas and the scene as potentially dangerous to empire though, isn't it? It just shows you the power of one man with a voice. It shows you the power of one man... Actually, it also shows the importance of Samoa. You're quite right that it's a remote island as we would consider it from the the stance of Europe. But at that time for Britain, it was an indispensable stopping point en route to Australia and to New Zealand, which were still called the colonies. America was now taking an interest in their backyard um, and there were various treaties. One of the early treaties was one by which the Americans took uh, a base in what is now the American territory. And there were also German companies and British companies who were actually out to exploit the natural resources that were there, above all copper, which, as I said, was a derivative of the coconut and could be used in various processes, um, all the way from making soap or some cosmetics right through to creating animal feeds. Uh, so the place had a greater importance at that time than you might imagine. You touch on the speculation on whether um, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, converted uh, just before he died to Catholicism, or at least that he was thinking about it. What's your own view on that? Because there's been so much said about it and possibly a lot of emphasis on it, Whether, um, but people are always going to ask questions. I would exclude it. I think it's quite simply false. Stevenson, as I said earlier on, was brought up as a Presbyterian in the Church of Scotland and as a Calvinist. Um, I think he... I've coined the phrase in this that Stevenson was a lapsed Calvinist. Now, we're accustomed to talking about lapsed Catholics. Graham Greene, for example, full of it, so is Francois Mauriac. But if you have somebody who comes from a strong religious background, and Calvinism is very certainly that, then it is likely, and I think it is definitely the case in Stevenson, that he retains that structure of mind 
even when he loses his own faith and even when he loses his belief in God. So he had a very strong moral view. For example, in sexual matters, he was um, uncompromising when he came across cases of adultery. Um, His stepdaughter's husband um, was having an affair with a Samoan woman in Apia, which is about three miles away from Vailima, where the family clan had actually settled. When Stevenson found out about this, he expelled the man. Now, there had been difficulties with him. Joe, um, as he was, Joe Strong, was obviously a man of slightly dubious character, and he and Stevenson had moments of bitter um, enmity, moments of reconciliation. But he got him out immediately when he discovered that. But it was the same in in a wider matter. I think his outlook was, well, lapsed Calvinist, um, that he had the ethical outlook, the uncompromising moral vision of somebody brought up in that. He made good friends with Catholic missionaries. He became friendly with the bishop. There is a beautiful cathedral in Apia in Samoa, which is based on Notre Dame in Paris. But that's one thing. I really see no reason to believe that he was in any way likely to convert to Catholicism. But the Calvinistic outlook probably gave him a discipline and, you know, a kind of a strong resolve to maybe get through some of the other challenges he faced. And one of those was his relationship with his wife, Fanny. She was um, several years older than him. She was a high capacity woman, very passionate, very smart. Um, She suffered with with a lot of moods, it seems. And you you described that she, you know, she whether she either took to the bed or went on these little trips away just to kind of recoup and regroup, so to speak. But why do you think it is that history has been a little unkind to her? Because she clearly um, cared enormously for her husband. Oh, a little unkind is very, very much an understatement or a euphemism. I mean, some biographies of Stevenson, when they're talking about Fanny van der Grief Osborne Stevenson, to go through her various names, um, they treat her with uh, revulsion, I mean, with hatred, it seems to me, at certain times. There's no question she was a very strong-minded woman. There's no question that she was a very talented woman in various ways. She also aspired to be an artist, and that's how they first met. She was married in the USA, um, but her husband was a womanizer, was serially unfaithful. Eventually, she left him with the three children and came to France to enrol at an academy of fine arts. She had done no research before and was unaware that they wouldn't take in women as um, students. So she went to an artist colony, Gritz, in France, which is where she met up with Robert Louis Stevenson. Initially, by the way, she seems to have been more attracted by his cousin, uh, who was also a man of considerable talent. In any case, she aspired really beyond it. She had artistic temperament, but very often the artistic temperament doesn't actually produce any art. And later on she wanted to be a writer and she did write one or two stories, uh, unquestionably there were nothing very much. Uh, She may have, well, unquestionably did collaborate with Stevenson but to what extent we don't altogether know. However, they had periods of very great bitterness there were people there who record their surprise at her dominance over him, so that at times when she told him to go to bed, you've been up long enough, it's time to get to bed because of your health, he would meekly follow what she actually said. When they were living in Bournemouth before they went out to the to America, then to the South Seas, 
she limited the amount of access that could be given um, to Stevenson by his friends. And we're talking about people like Henry James and many other of the great men of letters at the time. So she was very strong-minded. She certainly, in many ways, was dominant over him. There's good records of their arguments over the book in the South Seas where they had radically different views about it. Um, and this was never resolved. The book did not come out. It is also said, and I think this is true, that she disapproved of the first version of Jekyll and Hyde, which he wrote, as a consequence of which he burned that manuscript and redid it. Now, that story is not possible to verify, but it seems to me to be quite plausible. Fortunately, he rewrote it in the, the version that we now have. She had talents of her own. She was a remarkable botanist. So when they ended up um, in Vilema, it was she who took charge of uh, overseeing the farm and the garden. She wanted to make the place completely self-sufficient. But she also wanted to experiment. So she was in touch with botanists all over the world, in Australia and also in London, brought in various seeds and so on. She um, brought in animals um, for the farm. This didn't always work because the pigs managed to climb over the fence and to run away. And believe it or not, there is a species of wild pig which is native to, um, to Samoa. So there were these difficulties. On the other hand, in my mind, there is no question that we, when he had this really virulent bouts of illness, which could have killed him, she went and looked after him. In particular, there was a time when he went to Hawaii and she did not go with him. He went accompanied by a servant who unfortunately contracted measles, so he wasn't able to land in Hawaii. Stevenson became very ill, but she came to look after him. So that has to be built into the story, that she did nurse him, I'm sure that she kept him alive a bit longer and nursed him through periods of uh, of illness. Um, I think she was really quite a frustrated woman. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with Scottish writer, translator and teacher, Dr Joseph Farrell, on his latest book, Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa, where Joe writes that Stevenson and his wife Fanny were a most unlikely couple and their relationship and married life made a witch's brew of conflict and mutual support, of neurotic dependence, profound need, mutual love, periods of antagonism, episodes of rivalry and unequal public success. I put it to Joe, would have been better off without her. Well, this is going to be a subject which you can debate, obviously, inconclusively, far into the night. Voices will be raised, uh, tempers will be lost, friendships will be ruined over it. I mean, you have the situation with Tolstoy and his wife. You have the situation with um, Thomas Carlyle and Jane Welsh. In my mind, there's no doubt that Stevenson, uh, Robert Lewis and Fanny, they loved each other quite deeply. It was um, maybe a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf type situation where there were moments of bitterness, moments when they were uh, arguing hammer and tong with each other. But there's no question that the relationship between them was actually quite deep and that they were mutually dependent on each other, in my opinion. Would he have been better without her? Well, who can say? I really don't think he would have lived as long as he did. Do you think if he had survived the brain hemorrhage, he would have stayed out and lived out, stayed and lived out his life in Samoa? 
Um, when they settled in Samoa the first time, he did not mean to settle there permanently. When they were out there, he was considering other places. They were considering going to Madeira, for example, where they would spend the winter and then come back to London, or maybe even to Edinburgh, but certainly to London there. Um, but then later on, he... But he was aware always of his ill health. He always had the fear or the belief that his life was going to be short. Uh, he refers at one time when they settled in Samoa that he thought he'd nothing ahead of him except the nursemaid and the undertaker. Um, but he was happy there. Would he have come back? Um, personally, I doubt it. But I suppose had he lived into a customary old age, uh, who can say? Remember the other thing? He was deeply involved in, in, in the affairs of Samoa. He was deeply involved in the politics and the internal struggles between the various contenders for the position of kingship, the position of Maliatoa. So he cared about what was happening there. He learned Samoan, which is quite remarkable, um, not very fluently according to his own account, whereas Lloyd Osborne did learn it extremely well. But he went talking to Samoans, he made friendships with them, various accounts of the enormous feasts they had there. One of the things that was characteristic of some of them was that they only had Samoans there. There were no white people there. Joe, you said something very interesting to me when we were uh, talking earlier. You compared Robert Louis Stevenson to um, D.H. Lawrence in terms of his, um, the outlook he took on sexual matters. Well, in one aspect only, other, obviously in other fields that were very, very, very different writers. I only mean that D.H. Lawrence in his correspondence leading up to Lady Chatterley's Lover complained about the expectations of the readership and how they uh, reined in or restricted the freedom which a writer had in dealing particularly with sexual matters. He was also concerned with language. Strangely enough, in one of his correspondence, um, Stevenson uses the word, which I don't suppose I can pronounce on Irish radio, uh, when he was talking about an earlier novel called uh, Prince Otto, he talks about one countess who was a jolly little, and then he uses the word um, foxtress. But then later when he was in the South Seas, he then developed, and he used the word realist. Now, previously, he'd been very hostile to Zola. Remember, he he spoke good French. He had a deep knowledge of French culture. He began to change his attitude. And when he wrote a book called The, the Beach at Falaisan, then, at that time, he spoke of this as being a realist novel at a time when there were all the myths and all the fantasies about the South Seas. And Gauguin becomes the extreme exponent of that, even if he was not known to Stevenson at that time. He wanted to describe it, and not in his word, sugar candy terms, but life as it really was. So there is a passage which then caused great offence back home, where the trader, Wiltshire, 